Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello, another first for our show. This week, Jim and I have no power because of Hurricane Isaias. We both live in the Northeast, and the storm was pretty ferocious. No electricity in our homes means no Wi-Fi, and therefore no new show this week. Instead, we are posting an old show, one of our favorites from a couple of years ago, an episode that reminds us of the joys of travel and small towns. Hope you enjoy it. Richard, today's show is going to be a little bit different. It's our first podcast with a singer-songwriter, and I think she's one of the best. Hey, Mr. Lifeguard, up in the big chair, turn up the radio, you're looking good, yeah, dancing at the snack bar, singing to each other. And our episode is called Small Town Rebirth. Dar Williams. Well, this is the thing. Blobfest is is such a great example of what happens to create this thing that I call the hometown pride because it allowed people to meet each other in this really funny way. They filmed the blob around Phoenixville and other towns and they got a copy of the movie from the director's son and Steve McQueen, I guess, lived around there and NPR station called up the Colonial Theater and said, do you have any plans to celebrate his birthday? And they said, well, We'll screen the blob. So they had a tin foil hat contest. Like they had these screenings, the screenings all sold out. And they said, let's just keep this going and growing. And now it's a three day weekend and they'll have a theme with speakers. And the week I was there, it was Japanese Monster Week. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it? As a singer-songwriter, Dar Williams has spent a couple of decades touring America's small towns and cities. She's composed in their coffee shops and drunk in their bars. And she wasn't just singing, she was watching and learning a lot about how communities struggle with economic challenges and how they can revive. And now she's taken all of this and put it in a book called What I Found in a Thousand Towns, A Traveling Musician's Guide to Rebuilding America's Communities, One Coffee Shop, Dog Run, and Open Mic Night at a Time. (laughs) Great title. Welcome to How Do We Fix It, Dar. Thank you. Tell us how you began to explore this overlooked America. I was really feeling like we were going to be getting into this kind of dystopian thing where all of the downtowns would be dead and I would just go to these super hippie college towns and they would sort of live as oases apart Mm -hmm. from the rest of the world. 
But I was in Keene, New Hampshire, and they were revitalizing an old theater there, and they were really excited about you know, they, all of the different things that the volunteers were doing, but then the volunteers were talking to each other about local landscaping and new stores and parks. So I saw that happening in Keene after feeling so despairing of watching one town after another get bored as, as a touring musician, you know, you come into town and you're playing the, the local old theater, maybe a coffee house. Right. So you're getting a pretty intimate look at these downtowns. Yes, yes, I was, but it was... In the mid-90s, there was this kind of given that this was going to be a dying phenomenon. But towns did come back, and it became very interesting to me from that moment on, about 1998, 1999, to figure out the mechanisms. But I just stored them up in my head for a really long time and watched it grow. So events like that, that bring different people together, it's related to this idea in your book that you call positive proximity. What do you mean by that? A friend of mine said, you know, there's this Harvard study that says that proximity determines our relationships, that basically the people we will get close to in our communities will just live close to us. And I thought of all the negative proximity narrative that we have in this country. And if we transcend that myth and say, I live with people who are very different than I am, and that's a really good thing, and we all figure out how to combine who we are and what we do in these really interesting ways and you have positive proximity, that's when your schools start to improve. That's when your libraries start to become multi-purpose centers and make their way into the 21st century. So positive proximity basically means that you have this great store of social capital. You have this bank account of goodwill that comes from understanding that you're going to be working with people who are different from you, and you want to walk out the door and be a part of that in the morning. And part of that is something you call translation. Yes, the three things I identified as, as crucial for building and sustaining positive proximity were spaces that allowed that beautiful thing called the strength of weak ties. Mark mm-hmm. Granovetter's he started it in terms of how do people got jobs, but it's such a beautiful thing for how we build social networks. Um, and by weak ties, strength of weak ties, explain what you acquaintances. mean. Acquaintances. Weak ties are acquaintances. Spaces are important. Certain kinds of outdoor spaces, indoor spaces... The next thing I found were projects, your history-based projects, your food, culture, or nature-based projects that are centered on your town's unique identity. Those were really useful ways to bring people together. And then the last one was translation. I chose for last because it's the hardest to describe, but translation is basically the way a community will create ways for people to access them, different parts of the community to access, outsiders to access, It's everything from street signs to a spirit in the air. So it's really tolerance, respect, empathy for people who are not like you. That's a big part of it. But it's also the mechanisms that allow that empathy wheel to go forward. And giving space to all kinds of folks. I mean, like I was in Worcester, Massachusetts once, and I was doing an interview. And on my way out, this little 11-year-old came in, and he had this sheaf of papers in his hands. And I said, what's that guy doing? And the presenter said, he's reading the news. It's a community radio station. He wanted to read the news. He's 11 years old. He's going to read the news. Tell us about the appropriately named Phoenixville, Pennsylvania. Phoenixville is kind of my go-to for everything that I love about towns. (laughs) So it's sort of like I always find myself going back to Phoenixville because, first of all, they had this downturn that was 
complete and very abrupt. A lot of famous stuff is held up by Phoenix Iron, and so with Steel City. They lost all their jobs kind of overnight, and a different economy took over, and so there was a lot of drug dealing and prostitution. So the people who started talking to each other were people around Phoenixville who were interested in revitalization uh, and historic uh, revitalization of buildings and they went off and got something very official which was the designation of the historic district um, and they started to look at buildings so that's how they started but then um, one of the buildings was the Colonial Theater which was an old vaudeville theater that many people had owned but finally the town bought it you know, for a dollar a non-profit group bought it from the town for a dollar and they started to fill it with movies and make it very low-tech, low-expectation, just easy, low-key event-centered, and that's when the hearth of the community really started to go. So it's a very ideal sweet spot for American cities and towns to be in right now because they're finding all these layers of history, whether it's geological, prehistorical, pre-colonial, Native American, a lot of great stuff going on there. Or mid-century modern, as in Phoenixville with their Blob Fest, where they celebrate the filming of the Blob Wait, in their yes. town. I wanted to ask you about this. <laughs> this so, is the old movie, the right. 1950s movie. Exactly. Also, so another thing. I used to be editor of a movie magazine. <laughs> so the Blob with Steve McQueen was actually shot there. And how did that movie play a role? In- wait, wait a minute. For people who don't know what the blob is, it was, it was, it was scary. <laughs> so, I'm not sure you think so now. I, I watched it recently. So um, uh, let's just say it was the primitive era of special effects. Right. But how did that movie play a role in this revitalization of the old downtown theater? Well, this is the thing. Blobfest is, is such a great example of what happens to create this thing that I call the hometown pride. Because it allowed people to meet each other in this really funny way. They filmed the blob around Phoenixville and other towns, and they got a copy of the movie from the director's son. And Steve McQueen, I guess, lived around there, and NPR station called up the Colonial Theater and said, do you have any plans to celebrate his birthday? And they said, we'll screen the blob. So they had a tinfoil hat contest at our parade <laughs> where, you know, because tinfoils are supposed to keep the, the outer space people from invading your brain. And, and, they, and they really loved it. Like, the people loved it. They had these screenings. The screenings all sold out. And they said, let's just keep this going and growing. And now it's a three-day weekend, and they'll have a theme with speakers. And um, the week I was there, it was Japanese Monster Week. So they had blow-up Godzillas and all the storefronts and Godzilla crepes. And, you know, they had all these ways of bringing in all this local energy to it. Talk about the importance of locally owned and locally involved businesses. It's one example of, of a drugstore in Moab in Utah. There's this thing that I call the RV ratio. No, the VR ratio. <laughs> so it's in not... Moab, you also have the RV ratio. Exactly. I don't want to mix them up. So you'll have what I call the VR, the visitor viable, resident relevant. The ideal is to have a space that acknowledges the fact that tourist dollars, and I don't call them tourists, I call them visitors. They're more visitors than tourists. They're not touring through. They want to stay and be a part of what's going on. But ideally, you have things that, that cater to them, the T-shirts, the keychains, the candles. But then you also have aspirin, shovels, tube socks, and things like that that cater to the locals. I mean, the big ideal is to have that and also to have a bit of social feeling 
in those spaces so people can talk to each other on the line and get that whole strength of weak ties going there too. Some of that historical recognition plays into local businesses having more of a local feel and and really becoming that hearth of the community. You know, you're talking about Moab, and Moab, probably more than most of the towns in your book, really does this thing that you write about, which is leveraging the natural environment. Uh, That's obviously a huge reason people come to Moab. Yeah. But, you know, mountain biking, parks. But a lot of smaller towns, or not necessarily smaller, but less exotically beautiful towns also do this. So, I mean, if you really think that you don't have a single patch of of interesting brush to to walk through or a waterfront to develop, there's ways that you can create these wonderful public-private partnerships to open up your waterfronts, and I'm Mm -hmm. always an advocate of that. Mm -hmm. Um, If nothing is going on, then find a church... God knows that they they love to have their spaces used, a lot of the more progressive ones, and get an open mic started on a Wednesday. And just start with that. Find out which postal workers, you know, write poetry, who loves to sing, and find those different ways of tapping the energy and, and passion of your community. Always start with a library. Start with the kooky librarian. I always say the town council person who likes to bike to work is usually a good person to approach for ideas or who dresses up on Halloween or science teachers. Those are good places to start to get your own thing going. But usually you can tap into something that's already there. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And he's Jim Meggs. We're sharing the same microphone today. So it's, it's, it's kind of cozy here. We're speaking with Dar Williams about her splendidly titled book, What I Found in a Thousand Towns, A Traveling Musician's Guide to Rebuilding America's Communities, One Coffee Shop, Dog Run, and Open Mic Stand at a Time. Mm-hmm. Mike Knight. Mike Knight. What did I say? <laughs> Mike Stand. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One of your best loved songs is called The Christians and the Pagans, and it's about a Christmas dinner shared between a young couple that who identify as Wiccan, mm-hmm. I guess, and, uh, and they're very conservative relatives. That song is sweet and it's funny, but it's also about finding common ground between people who might not seem to have that much in common. What do you see happening in these communities that helps people who don't necessarily share all their values or their religion or, you know, race or sexual orientation, getting these different disparate groups together? 
Well, I've discovered that there's an invisible force underneath all of this because urban planners, back in the day, there was all this car culture, sprawl, but urban planners have really come into how do we create this warmth and and sense of connection in how we plan communities. And they're working silently, and I don't even know if they know they're doing this, with uh, sociologists like Robert Putnam, who wrote Bowling Alone, who really speaks so eloquently about this thing called bridging social capital. So my answer to your question is that bridging social capital is, is the thing that's helping people find each other and be less xenophobic and, and bigoted. You know, social capital is that bank account of goodwill that we have between one another, that sense of, I don't necessarily get along with you, but I respect you, we get work done. And bonding social capital will happen within your congregation. So you'll have that strong sense of goodwill within one religion, one Elks Club, mm-hmm. one bridging social capital is what happens when you come out of your house and you're a slightly homophobic Episcopalian, say, and your neighbor wears a yarmulke and you think that he actually has some prejudice against you and then there's this female couple next door and you don't really know how to talk to them, but you have these roses. <laughs> And each of you has this great solution to aphids. And you discuss that. And you find the conversation starter through the, the roses. And then you find other ways. And you find out that the guy with the yarmulke is not prejudiced against you. And you discover that you're not really homophobic at all. And, and everybody finds their footing. And then, lo and behold, there's a capital campaign to really add this new wing to the library with a lot of things that will reach out to the children and the community. Speaking of bridging social capital, talk about what role the police can play and Gainesville, Florida. Gainesville is sort of an epicenter or sort of a mecca for maybe this next frontier of of policing, um, though they are not alone. The River Phoenix Center for Peacebuilding is run by Hart Phoenix and Jeffrey Weisberg. And Jeffrey's background was in mediation with people in the what's called at-risk youth community. And when they got rid of that program, Jeffrey and Hart started this center looking at solutions to things. And one of the things they do is they created a program where they have police youth dialogues. And the famous story that they have is of a cop who was coupled with a kid who he had arrested. And by coincidence, the cop became a mentor. And one of the things they discovered... A lot of police have a lot of trauma, and then they also have trauma on the job, an enormous amount of trauma. Then you have these kids coming from traumatized backgrounds. But these places where people have encountered trauma offer us enormous opportunities for communication and for healing, and it's working. I saw this YouTube video where there was a cop that came to address a disturbance and this is very coded language. So, so he comes in, and there are these African-American kids playing basketball. And he comes striding out of the car, and it's very menacing to see a cop coming towards these kids. And the kids, you know, the kids are like, ugh, what now? He starts playing basketball with them. And then he says, I'm going to bring reinforcements. And then Shaquille O'Neal shows up, and then he plays with the cops. And that happened in Gainesville. And, and I said... What did they think about this? <laughs> my friend, who was my sort of conduit to the community, said, I'm sure that, that Jeffrey and Hart were thrilled. <laughs> but they didn't set it up. It was just in the air to go that way. 
there's so much negativity in our in our national politics and you know we get this idea that everyone's so tribalized and your book really is full of full of love and do you feel like you're out of step with the national discourse somehow I don't think I'm out of step at all I think that the national discourse is there to scare us off of our game you know, somebody said, why would anyone come in and try to divide a community? And I said, well, the, the wider the divide, the wider the street is for the bulldozers to come in and knock down whatever has been created within a community or to rent the fabric so that you can put in a large development without any restrictions. I mean, there are a lot of people who profit from division, but there is a specific narrative of division so that we all just say, we're just a bunch of morons, we're so divided, look how we can't get anything done, government is something to blame as opposed to who we are. That malaise alone will keep us from the voting booths, keep us from getting involved with the small projects that lead to larger projects, even running for office, and all of those things. I think that's absolutely on purpose. And it's so important for us to to counter that with the reality of more and younger and younger people are getting involved with zoning committees and planning committees and urban planning and uh, you know bike sharing and local food they they really understand the the deep lifestyle and political resonance of those things dar talk about the importance of collaboration one thing that is my counter narrative to offer is that the opposite of division is not unity it is collaboration. Sometimes a call to unity is just telling people to shut up. <laughs> so it's a very wonderful thing to say to a town, look how well you're collaborating. Sometimes these towns will have really spiky personalities and spiky issues going on. They'll have a lot of muck. Um, and they will collaborate towards managing change. And that's the other thing that I think is very valuable. We manage change. We don't embrace it. We don't reject it. We see it coming down the pike, and we find ways to manage what's actually happening. And that's, I think, better than saying, embrace it. Like, no, (laughs) you don't have to embrace it. But managing is a very constructive uh, way of looking at at how we we handle the way we grow into time, which is, of course, inevitable. It's been a big theme of this podcast, actually, that you don't, people often think, oh, we all have to compromise and meet in the middle. You don't always have to agree about everything. You know, people can do these disparate, these fragmented things, and then you find different projects and draw from these different backgrounds to, uh, to create new and different things. And the next thing you know, there's something that has bridged politically bridged across the ages which is very important young and old and and then you get people doing the next step this is a little pollyannish but i think it's true i've seen it in all the cities with strong positive proximity people look to the perimeters and say these these people are low income and they don't have access let's create access these people have been disenfranchised through racism how do we how do we bring them in and and create more access we have a, a, a narrative of, that we're dealing with in this country of, of police being racially biased. How can we get community policing, and what are the models we can work with? How do we get community health care centers? Uh, you know, those, that's what's happening next in these places that are really finding all of these different uh, ways of connecting. Dar Williams, author of What I Found in a Thousand Towns. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. 
Richard, I love it when different How Do We Fix It podcasts kind of mesh together. They start forming this tapestry, and this idea of revitalizing America has really been a big part of our show recently, especially with the the show we did with James Fallows about the book Our Towns. And now here's this singer-songwriter whose work I've always loved, uh, and seeing it from you know, this perspective of the the local coffee shop and the old theater, and it really spoke to me. Yeah, and and it's a reminder of how much the arts can be part of the solution in bringing back towns and communities. And something that really struck me, I drove to Maine just a few days ago and went past Lowell, and for years I've been doing this drive— And for years, I've looked out of the window of the car and thought, how sad all those huge old factories dilapidated and almost beyond repair. Now many of those buildings have come back, and there's been a resurgence in some of the rusted-out towns and cities in the Northeast. Right. I feel like it's way too easy to assume that we've got a big problem, we need a big grant we need a big federal program let's build a giant convention center let's build a casino you know when people drop these islands of you know steel and glass in these blighted areas it very rarely has the effect you know a new ball stadium these very rarely have the effect that that they're supposed to it's much more likely to come from a bunch of little shops opening up downtown a smaller grassroots art center these collaborative programs are, that really work at the street level, I think, in the long run, are way more effective. I, I want to agree with you, but I don't. Um, I do think there are examples of where ballparks do bring back towns and cities. I was in El Paso, Texas. There was a very good example of the minor league stadium there helping to revive the community around it. Also, James Fallows talks about uh, the the, uh, the convention center and also the uh, ballpark in Columbus, Ohio. Well, I'll so grant I think you, there are some I'll examples. grant you the minor league ballpark thing. But as a as the the token, you know, libertarian conservatarian of the group, I have to say that massive tax breaks given to billionaire, you know, football uh, uh, and baseball team owners to build ball- ballparks is something that I think is, is when you frame it like that. How could I possibly disagree? But but you know, the, but the key here, thing here is is. These are regular people getting together to do cool stuff in their towns that embrace what's already good about their town. You know, some of the things in the past, some of the historic architecture, some of the talent that's already there. You mentioned it, and I certainly felt it reading Dar's book, is how loving it is. How much love and giving people space to be who they are is such an important part of what she's talking about. Yeah, and at a time when so much of the national discourse is so sort of tortured and angry, it's just really nice to see somebody out there meeting people and liking them and helping tell their stories. And so, and for me, as a podcaster, I love being part of that. This is a very feel-good edition of How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davis. I'm feeling rosy all over. (laughs) Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. Music's by Lou Stravinsky and also Dar Williams. Uh, Check out both her book and her music. It's a rich journey you have ahead of you if you do so. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.